0: We are doing a series called The Grave Robber, and as you saw in that last uh, little video, that it's called The Grave Robber because the seventh miracle in the Gospel of John, there's seven miracles. The last one is when Jesus uh, calls Lazarus forth and he robs the grave. He's the grave robber. And uh, this is a series where we're looking at, in the Gospel of John, there's seven miracles that John uniquely positions, I believe, by the Holy Spirit too. And they're uniquely positioned to demonstrate something that if you read in the beginning of the book of John, around I think verse 17, that they're to demonstrate, John's purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so John, the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, has an intent, or an intent and a purpose of why he writes what he writes. Uh, If you have your Bibles and want to open up to the book of John, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2, but go over to the end of John, around chapter 20. Uh, Go around chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. It's on page uh, 1093. (laughs) Now, don't start looking, some of you. How does he know? But look at chapter 20, and look with me at verse 30 and 31. And right here it tells you, John gives you an indication of why he has written what he has written in this account, and why he has done what he has done. It tells us right here when he writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, everything that he has written prior, these are written so that you may, what? Believe Believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that God had promised, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John has a purpose of why he is writing. And so the grave robber in our In our series, uh, we're beginning, this is the first one, the first miracle that John records. Of course, there's other miracles and other accounts and gospels, but we're looking specifically at these seven miracles. Now, I mentioned this last week, um, that one of the things, the premises behind what we're looking at is drawing us to pay attention to the activity of God. God is at work all around us. God is always active. God is always up to something, all the time, whether you see it or whether you don't see it. And we, by looking at the Word, is to help us uh, to draw our focus and our attention on the activity of God in our life and around us in our world. That's what we want to do. The Bible says... That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. I need more faith. You need more faith. We need to increase in faith. We need to increase in believing that God is able to do above and beyond what we ask or think. Some of us kind of not sure we, I mean, we, we believe it intellectually, but is it really something in our life that we're anticipating and we're believing God for Every day that we're expecting and believing God to act in our life. Now, as I said, don't, don't always assume that God is going to act just the way that you prescribe. That's always kind of a danger because God is sovereign. We talk about the sovereignty of God. God is in charge. He's in control. He can do what He wants, when He wants, and how He wants. But we, our job is just to pay attention We mentioned last week how when, and you see this all through all the four Gospels, that when Jesus was uh, His earthly ministry, that one of the things that uh, this certain group of individuals, the Pharisees or the Jewish uh, religious leaders, is that every Jew was anti-Jesus because we know His disciples were, what, Jewish, right? They weren't Norwegians. I mean, you know, they weren't from, you know, Jamaica. I mean, they were Jews, So it isn't that Jesus, that all the Jews rejected Jesus, but a certain cadre of religious leaders were so focused on what they believed the Messiah should be and do that when the the Messiah came, they didn't recognize him because he didn't fit into their paradigm, how they think that he should be, or how he, you know, what he should look like, or et cetera, et cetera we have often the danger of doing the same thing. We have a certain way that God is to work and act, and then when God is working and acting in our life, we don't, we're not paying attention to it. And so we want to pay attention. That's what's behind what we're doing. Uh, put that picture of uh, the violinist up. Uh, on, Jan- on a January morning in 2007, a world-class violinist played six of Johann Sebastian Bach's most uh, wonderful and popular concertos uh, solo on a violin that was a, Then that picture there where he's in the ball cap, uh, that violin is a 300-year-old Stradivarius that's worth over three and a half million dollars. Now, two nights before the smaller picture, Joshua Bell played a sold-out concert in Washington, D.C., where patrons paid for nosebleed seats 200 bucks, okay? But this performance, where he's wearing the ball cap, this performance was free. He wasn't wearing a tuxedo with coattails that he wore at the concert hall. He was wearing this baseball cap, and he was standing incognito outside Of a metro train station in Washington, D.C. Now, this is what's interesting. This was an experiment that another journalist uh, did, and you can go on YouTube. I didn't want to, I started to show the video, but because the camera was kind of hidden, I thought it'd be a little more difficult to see, but you can go online and look at it and your computer and see it a lot better. But what they did was they had this experiment where they had a hidden camera, and Joshua Bell, this world renowned, Violinist playing uh, Bach on this 300-year-old violin worth $3.5 million. Here he is in a train station, and they noted how over almost 1,500 people passed by him and never stopped to listen. He played for 45 minutes without pause or acknowledgement, And he netted about $32.17 that people dropped in his case. Now, here was a world-class musician playing a 300-year-old violin worth $3.5 million. And just the night before, a concert hall was packed out, and people at the bottom rung paid at least $200 to hear him play and yet, as you, if you ever watch the video, people just passed him on by. I thought that was interesting because that illustrates our issue. Is that something significant is happening right in our midst. And we're missing it. We're missing the activity and working of God. And so in these seven weeks, we're going to... Look at these seven miracles this morning, the Jesus turning water into wine. The second sign was in chapter 4 where he heals a government official's son. The third miracle is in chapter 5 where he heals a crippled man who had never walked. The fourth sign is one we're familiar with for sure where he fed over 5,000. Actually, it was probably fifteen to 20,000 if you counted women and children. The fifth sign was he walked on water, also in chapter 6. The sixth sign, and you notice as you read them, they get progressively greater and greater and greater. And he healed a man who was born blind. And, of course, the last sign was when he called called forth Lazarus. I want us to stand and read John 2. We're going to read it together. I'll read, and you can follow along in your Bible. It should be on the screen. But let's read John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11, and uh, reading from the ESV. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of His, what? Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, God, for Your Word. We thank You that it's an accurate, reliable account of Your will and purpose for our life. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in in your sight, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. I want us this morning to unpack this, and we're going to make some connection that I think will be helpful for connecting this into our, our own understanding, our life. In John chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says that for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was grace and truth. God had instructed His people throughout the Old Testament to anticipate, to prepare, to look for the Messiah. And as I said earlier, the religious leaders and many of the people of Jesus' day lost focus. They lost sight of of this Messiah, and they gradually began to steer off course regarding their law. Paul said in Galatians that the law was not bad, it just has become misused or diverted from its purpose. And they began to look to the law as the means or way that we are made right or connect with God. But that was never the intent. Paul said the law was to reveal our sin, but the way that we are to connect with God is through Christ. And so they were not paying attention. So Jesus said, come not to reform The Jewish religion. He didn't come to bring reformation to the Jewish religion, but he came to fulfill the law and replace it all together with a new covenant. You know, when we read and when it says about at the communion, the Lord's Supper, last week we participated in that. And it speaks of that the Lord says, This cup is representative of the blood, which is the new contract, the new covenant we could not sustain ourselves under the old system. The old system was the judgment of God, but Jesus has come to bring grace and truth. And so these miracles help to flesh that out, to help us round that out and understand dimensions of the ministry of Christ. And so by way of unpacking it, let's look at just the setting. Let's find out what's going on here. Well, there's a wedding. We had a wedding here on Friday night. Um, there was a wedding, and it was located in Cana of Galilee, roughly 10 miles north of Nazareth. And so weddings were, I mean, they're a big deal, but they were really a big deal in Jewish culture. I mean, they could last over a week. And those of you who were involved in the planning of Barbie's wedding, you know, how would you like to just have that ongoing for a week? You're, you know, I mean, the cleanup and everything involved, and I, I see some of you shaking your heads. But they were the wedding was a culmination in the Jewish system of the betrothal uh, stage or period. You remember when Joseph and Mary uh, were we we use the word engaged, but that's not really quite gives us the impact. The engagement, our word, but the betrothal stage could last over a year, and it was legally binding. You remember Joseph, even though they had not consummated sexually their marriage union, Mary was legally bound under a legal obligation of marriage to Joseph. And so that's why there's that tension until the angel intervenes into Joseph's life and lets him in on what's, what, what's going on. So the wedding feast, the wedding period is this culmination and it was just a big deal. I mean, it was a big community thing and people were invited Far and wide, and it was just an ongoing celebration and tradition, uh, according to the Mishnah, which is the um, which is the traditions of the rabbis, uh, also the Talmud. But if I believe right, the Mishnah is part of the Talmud. But that, you don't have to lose sleep over worrying about that. I'm sure Stetson, our Jewish scholar, will correct me. Is that correct? Is or do you, you just don't humor me now? Okay, all right, good. Just want to make sure, uh, but. Tradition, Jewish tradition, now this is what this says, okay? That virgins were to be married on Wednesdays and widows were traditionally to be married on Thursdays. I have no idea. I'm just telling you what. I just report the the scene, all right? And so, remember what it says in chapter 2. It says, on the third day. So, if you take the last account there at the end of chapter 1... Where Jesus calls Nathanael and he's hanging out with those guys more than likely on the Sabbath. So the third day would have probably been late Tuesday, Jewish calendar, or Wednesday morning ish, okay? So the third day from this last event, but also the third day of when, he, when this wedding festival would take place. And it was customary for the bridegroom, think about the symbolic uh, picture. Of the coming of Christ, the bridegroom would go to the home of the bride and he would together, as he goes to that home, he would take her to the festival and to the party. Get a picture of future things there in that wedding feast. That was the common tradition there. And so Jesus, by his presence at this wedding, I think signifies that he approved. This was something... You know, we have this idea. I, I don't like some of those old pictures, you know, where Jesus just looks so emaciated and down and dreary. And, you know, I remember the greatest story ever told, Max von Sydow came out in the 60s, and he just is kind of this walking, you know, just humorless type of individual. I think Jesus was full of life. My goodness, he was a carpenter. He wasn't any sweet guy. I mean, they didn't have the, you know, power tools. They were making tables and chairs and buildings with hand, you know, I mean, so, I mean, this was a strong guy. He loved life because he said in John 10, 10, I've come to bring you life and have it more abundantly. And so by coming to a wedding, it was a party. Jesus liked parties. He liked having a good time. He enjoyed because Jesus was the embodiment of the joy of the Lord, was he not? Why would he not have, be around people that wanted to be joyful? And and a wedding certainly was something that he approved of by his presence. So that's what's going on, a wedding. And Mary, Jesus' mother, she seems to have a role in this wedding. We don't really know the details, but some people assume that she either was you know, a relative, a, some connection there because, as we see in a little bit, she's very concerned at the, when they run out of wine. You know, why is it about, she could have easily been like some of you that were involved. Maybe you weren't necessarily family, but you were friends, and so you were involved in the wedding activity. We'll, we'll look at that in a little bit. So, the other, so the, here they're at this wedding, and verse 3, they've got a serious dilemma. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus went to Jesus and said, we have no wine. This was a big deal. Now, I know what it's like if we have a dinner or an event and we, you know, say, okay, we, we let, say, please RSVP. Listen, y'all are terrible about RSVPing. I'll just be honest with you. Do you even know the concept of RSVP? That means you let us know when you're going to come. Right, Debbie? Right? That's a, all right, so that's, that's a, it's kind of a new thing, RSVP. You let us know. Because why? You know, if we've got enough shrimp, and everybody can have four a piece. And all of a sudden, you show up with all your family. Guess what? Regis is only going to have two pieces or one piece. if he's lucky. So if we have an event or new members, whatever, and we have more people, that's good. But we've had occasions that I know Debbie's had to run out and get more food because we didn't, nobody let, it, you know, so, so you can maybe help and understand Mary is in a bit of a concern or panic. They ran out of wine. That was a big deal. One, it would be socially, um, let's just use an old Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic term, tacky, from the word takos, no, I mean, to be, to have the party. By the way, guys, the, 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 the bridegroom paid for the whole deal. Paid for footed the whole bill. And so this was not just, you know, this wasn't just a party. This was a significant social occasion that represented your family. And to be defective in the planning and to run out of something so essential as wine would be like those cheapskates, skates. You know, they didn't plan. I mean, who do they think is coming? What are they, they're like, this has been coming up for a year. They don't know this is happening. I mean, this would have been a big deal. In fact, it was a big deal. It was a social stigma that would have embarrassed the family and lasted for quite, a, quite some time. Now, in this culture, you know, there was not really any refrigeration system. And so the wine, they drank wine. The water was not always Reliable. And so, wine was fermented juice, okay? It was fermented. And But what was often the case, not always, but often the case, is that the wine would be diluted with water to decrease the, the, the content of alcohol. Now, the Bible is clear in forbidding and in giving us instruction that drunkenness is not becoming of a believer, okay? But... I'll be honest with you, it doesn't forbid the drinking of wine. I know some of you don't get overly excited about that, but but I do think there's wisdom in abstaining, but that's my own personal opinion, because I come from a family of drunks, and I have a propensity for addiction. So I think if you have that similar issue, drink sweet tea, people, Okay. So that's the setting. But what makes this wedding different was the Savior of this miracle. That's the setting of the miracle. But let's look at the Savior of the miracle. Jesus' mother, Mary. And when Jesus, when she says this to Jesus, when you read it, you're like, wow, that's kind of rude. Look at what he says. And Jesus said to her, verse 4, Woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, he really isn't being rude. And that would not be consistent with the character of Jesus. So I think it helps us to look at that. In our, and maybe it's in the translation of the English, but in that vernacular of that day, it would be the essence of him saying, ma'am. Uh, the NIV, if you have the NIV, uh, the NIV reads, Why do you involve me? Uh, literally, what to me and what to you. Jesus is not rejecting and saying, hey, I'm just here for the party. You know, y'all should have planned better. He's not saying that. And he's not being rude to his mother. In fact, the same term is used when Jesus is on the cross and he uses the same term, woman, uh, when he is dying on the cross. So again, it's, it's, not a, it's not, it doesn't have the... In English, it sounds a little harsh there, but he's essentially rejecting this. And this is what I want to say. He's rejecting, he's not rejecting his mother, but he's rejecting her suggestion of how he should handle the situation, okay? When he says, my hour has not yet come, Mary certainly knew who he was, right? She knew, and she had lived... For 30 years, knowing that this boy of hers, Mary and Joseph, had other children, okay, between the two of them, but Joseph was not Jesus' father. He was a step parent, he was his earthly guardian parent, okay? His father, we won't get into the, the whole account of the virgin birth, but so she knew who he was. Did she know everything? Well, no, of course not. Mary was human, okay? I know that, you know, uh, certain religious traditions want to import on her almost Savior-like attributes, but that's nothing in Scripture that does that. So she was, she was prompting him, and he seems to be saying, look, I, I'm going to handle it according to my timetable. Now, this is, to me, uh, just a little bit of a side note here, but it's important is that this is a real significant turning point or change in the relationship between Jesus and his mother. Okay? This is the first sign that's recorded of the miraculous in Jesus' life, the sign miracle. Prior to that, the last time we hear from Jesus is he's about 12 years of age. And he is in the temple discussing theology with the theologians, right? And he missed the bus because mom and dad are, you know, over halfway home. And they like, wait, where's Jesus? You ever, don't anybody raise their hand if you ever lost your child. Joseph, we don't see anymore. The assumption is that Joseph is dead. He, he died somewhere. Uh, in that time period. We do not see him at all here any, any further than since Jesus was 12 years of age. And so Jesus is not rejecting his mother, but he's rejecting her, directing him to handle it, uh, maybe, or to show him, show himself. Now, this is important. Don't check out on me. Maybe, Jesus, this is a good time to show who you are to the hometown crowd. Remember, think about Mary. She has lived with the stigma for 30 years of an illicit relationship that they assume because she, okay, now get this, she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now we just kind of like, yeah, of course, okay, Somebody came home to you and said, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant. Well, who? The Holy Spirit. Oh, praise God. Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) You're like, that's crazy. Right? The hometown crowd, they didn't move around a lot. They, in fact, they would, even the Jewish leaders would sneer and say, isn't that that carpenter's son? One of the rumors again, that the, the Jewish leaders uh, spread to defame the person of, Christ, of Jesus was that he was, he was illegitimate. That Mary had had some kind of affair and it was a cover-up. So, again, we're reading between the white space, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch that she's saying, look, show them once and for all who you are. Now, Jesus doesn't Respond to other people's impulses. Remember what he said? I only do, I only speak what my Father directs me to do. Now, in a much different way, in Matthew 4, Satan tried to get Jesus to kind of show off a little bit, right? If you're really the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple and your angels will capture you and everybody will see you in your glory and you won't have to go through all this suffering and nonsense you know just come on or you know what let's just cut to the chase why don't you just bow down and worship me and i'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth you don't even really have to bow down just just wink all right it doesn't say that but jesus said this is not my time the niv uses the word i think time in other words it's not my time yet to there's still a lot to happen but mary had a proper response in verse 5 when he said after verse 4 my hour has not yet come jesus or the, mary his mother said to the servants Do whatever he tells you. Boy, that's good advice, isn't it? That's a good directive. She doesn't direct Jesus. She doesn't nudge him. And that's, if you uh, were to buy the book by Mark Batterson, which is just a a resource uh, that um, I'm using, um, he kind of brings this out a little bit, and I don't agree with it, that Mary somehow nudged Jesus to do this miracle. I don't think Jesus needed any nudging, he was operating perfectly according to the timetable that he and his father had set and determined there. Uh, so, I don't agree with that. But he hasn't asked my advice on that when he wrote the book, so I'm sure he's not losing any sleep over Tim's uh, opinion on that. But Jesus is working the miracle. Now, verse 6, I want to read it again a little bit, and because there's just we need to pay attention to this. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, remember, John is writing primarily to Gentiles, non-Jews. They would have no idea what those six stone water jars or pots were for. So, he tells them just like he gives us and explains why they're there. And we'll talk about it in a second. For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And fill them up to the brim. Those jars, stone jars, probably held about 20 gallons of water. And so if you did the math, uh, you're talking about probably over 120 gallons of wine. That's a lot of booze, right? That's a lot of wine. That would be approximately 2,000 four-ounce glasses even if it was diluted three to one, which was the common way they diluted it, uh, three parts water to one part wine, that would be enough to last for days. And even after the wedding was over, it would be an abundance of blessing to this new couple to have such uh, an abundance of wine, which was very expensive. And it says that Jesus told them to fill it to the brim. Fill it to the brim, an important detail. Because this isn't... There was no sleight of hand trick. We'll fill it up halfway and i got this little little Kool-Aid powder we'll throw in there or do some little sleight of hand. No, fill it to the brim. Do you remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and they had that showdown? And if your God is God, Baal, told those Baal priests, let him answer by fire. And if Yahweh is God, let him answer by fire. And it says that those Baal priests, those false prophets, did all sorts of crazy stuff. They danced, they cut their wrists, they did everything to try to get the attention of a God who isn't there. People do crazy stuff to get the attention of false gods, don't they? And then Elijah walked up to the sacrifice, and you remember what he had them do? He had it drenched in water drenched in water. Keep bringing it on. Why? So that no one would accuse him of doing some little sleight of hand to spark the fire. Make See, this is, why, this is how God loves miracles. Why he loves Because he loves it when the odds done are so stacked against any human explanation that it's only a miracle of God when it happens. He gets all the glory. And so fill those pots to the brim. Everyone could see it was water in those pots. Now what's, what's the point for us? Let me give you just five quick observations. Of how this connects. What are some takeaways? What do these things illustrate? Number one, I think it illustrates the spiritual emptiness of where what Jesus was, where he was entering into. Now, mind you, this is the first miracle. This is the first coming out, so to speak. And there's tremendous symbolism in so many areas that we won't take time to get into it. But it, but it illustrates in a very fundamental way, just like those empty pots, six of them, six water pots that were symbolic. Again, what were those stone water pots used for the Jewish rite of purification? Six is also a number of man. It's also a number of incompleteness. It's a number of lack it's not a fulfilling number. It's not a full number in the Jewish uh, numerology system. So there, it's no coincidence that there are six empty water pots. What has Jesus come to do? Remember what it said in John 1.17? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus. Jesus has come To fill the empty system, the empty life, the empty religion of the day and bring the joy. Wine is a picture of joy in the Bible to bring the joy of the presence of God into a dead system. That's what he wants to do with you and me. He wants to come into our dead life and bring the joy of his presence. The second observation, boy, I got a lot more on that one, but second observation that we take away, it's a great example of obedience to Christ. Remember what, verse 5, what did Mary say? Do what He, whatever He tells you. Whatever he tells you. She didn't know what he was going to do. She didn't have omniscience. She doesn't know everything. But she knew this. Whatever he tells you, you do it. You pay attention to what he says. And I don't think it's, again, anything just to... that she defers her authority to Jesus. Okay? Mary is not a co-redemptrix. If you are raised in Roman Catholicism, she is not a co-redeemer, okay? She needed... What did she say when it was it in Luke when she gives that Magnificat worship and she talks about my Lord and my Savior? She needed a Savior. She needed the redemption of the Son that she was bearing. She needed His blood to atone for her sin just like everybody else. But at the same time, let's don't totally... Go the other extreme, because think about it, Mary was very special. I mean, my goodness, she gave birth to Jesus. Have any of you ladies done that? No, I know you think your children are special, but they're not Jesus, I can assure you. She defers to him. She provides, here's what we want to to remember. She provides a wonderful model, picture, of how we should approach Jesus In our request to intervene, Jesus, she's asking, Jesus, I need your intervention. We need your intervention. We need you to do something here. What do we pray? Jesus, I need you to intervene. I need you to do something in my life. I need you to act. He invites us to ask. We need to believe that He can do it. Remember, what, what does the word say? You ask, but you don't believe. Ask and believe. And we place it in his hand and trust that we answer the way that is best. And that what Mary did? She didn't give him instructions of what to do. She just knew that whatever he would do, I think it's around Gen in Genesis 18, I always get the address not quite right, but there's a v- phrase there, I believe it's said of Abraham, who says, Shall not the judge of all the earth always do right? Well, I want to know all the details. The judge of all the earth always does right. Yeah, but what about the judge of all the earth always does right? Yeah, but I want to know this, that. No, the judge of all the earth always, Don, does right. People ask me questions, maybe they ask you about, What about this? What about that? What about this? I don't know. I don't don't have the mind of God. But I do know this. I'm not going to trade what I do know for what I don't know. I'm not going to trade what I do know about God for what I don't know about God. I do know God is holy, righteous, loving, compassionate. That I do know. Therefore, what I don't know, I can completely rely and trust that whatever he does and allows to come through his hand is going to be in the periphery of his sovereign purpose And whatever that sovereign purpose is, is going to be good for me. It may not be good necessarily in the way I would understand it, sure. But I know that in the total grand scheme of what God is doing in the world and earth and universe from the beginning of time and how my little piece of sand fits into that great grand plan of God, I know that all things work together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. That I do know. All the in between have no idea. But I can trust him. That's faith, guys. That's faith. Thirdly, the Lord uses human instruments in performing wonders of his grace. What did Jesus use? He used the servants to fill the water pots. Interesting, he didn't tell the disciples, right? Somebody might accuse, oh, this was a big setup. You got your mom there, she's in on the deal. Yeah, yeah, we know this deal. Then your disciples just show up, right? And they just happen to run out of wine. And guess who's there? Jesus and his little lackeys. And you just magically turn water into wine. Uh Uh-uh, we're not buying it. Jesus doesn't even touch the pots. He doesn't do anything with the water. What does He do? He directs the servants. Who are the servants? I don't know. But they are obviously been hired out to take care of the catering or whatever's going on in the party. And to my knowledge, they have no self-interest in supporting or proving Jesus. They're just bystanders. That God uses to unwittingly make the miracle even greater to prove that Jesus is even beyond what we could ask or think. He can do a miracle and never once touch it or do anything. He will have even unbelievers operating in such a way, in such a scheme to direct His sovereign purposes. How is God to come provide your miracle? He can do it whatever and however way He wants. And if He uses a bunch of unbelievers to bring you the miracle, He can do that. He can do that. Fourth, serving gives us an understanding of who Jesus really is. Remember what Jesus said? I didn't come to be served. What did He say? I come to serve. Now, I thought, I'm trying to remember this one old writer I read this from, and it was worth digging through all the, the stuff to get to it, but I thought it was a good insight. Jesus performed this miracle. They lacked wine. He didn't do it for himself, but he did it in response to a need of others. Another situation, Jesus is in the desert, and Satan prompts him to turn bread, stone into bread, for himself. And Jesus refuses. What does that say about Jesus? He responds to the needs of others. That's what, in essence, a servant does. Responding to the needs of others. The Son of Man, as I said Matthew 20, 28, didn't come to be served but to serve. And the last observation here, and boy, there's so much, is just a reminder of the lesson of faith. The Bible says without faith, it is what? Impossible. Impossible to please God. Verse 8 in our passage. Look at it again. Verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast not sure who this master of the feast there, he's like maybe a maitre d', he's just somebody that maybe is the wedding, you know, he's in charge of the coordination of the servants, whatever. Uh, we're not sure who he is. But again, he is another individual who has no vested interest in helping Jesus prove a miracle. You with me? So he says, you, you draw it out, the disciples and Jesus, they're not even touching the stuff. He says, you draw some out and you take it to the head of the wedding who's in charge of the logistics and let him taste it. And he says what? He said, wow, you've saved the best to the last. Now think about that in big grand purposes of God's finishing act. What has God said about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 in various ways? God spoke through prophets and the forefathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by Jesus. He saved the best to the last with Christ. He says, you saved the best wine to the last. He says, most people, they bring out the good stuff first. And then when everybody's, you know, rocking heavy and partying to cool in the gang, It was just like a little wafer effect. You know. That's when they bring out the cheap stuff. Because they're too intoxicated to know what they're drinking. But you, have, and he didn't say this to Jesus, he said it to the bridegroom, the man. We did? Okay. He's like typical men. Oh, we did? Okay. Yeah, okay. That's, you know, they have no clue what's going on. Where did the food come from? I don't know. It just magically appears every night, you know. Right? Jesus has saved the best to the last. And it's a response in faith. What did he tell those servants? What did he tell that that master of the ceremonies, the maitre d'. He says, draw some out. In other words, action, this is where I want to go. Action is a necessary component to Jesus working and fulfilling the miraculous in our life. As we learned in James chapter 2 verse 6, or 1 verse 6, that if we ask, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, that there must be action accompanying real faith. You just say, let go and let God, meaning some kind of fatalistic false view of sovereignty, and that just that is a false understanding of the sovereignty of God, to just say, well, You know what? If God wants me to have a job, he'll just come and he'll just wake me up and bring one and drop it in my stomach while I'm laying here on the couch watching Dr. Phil. No, you get your rear end out there and you work and you look for a job. Quit using laziness as some kind of doctrinal, you know, theme of your life. We act, we work, we do everything with the best understanding, believing that God is in charge. Even in my going down these paths, wondering what's this connection got to do with that? Because God's in everything. God's working in everything. We walk by faith and not by sight. So sometimes we've got to dip our cup in and draw it out. Action. Here's here's where we're going to land. Think with me, because we're talking about miracles. Think of how God created the heavens and the earth. There's a Latin phrase used in theology called ex nihilo, meaning God created out of nothing. Scientists have never, ever created life in a laboratory. They've manipulated genetically existing components to do whatever, but they're still using existing matter and components. God created everything out of nothing. Nothing. He wasn't working with any known components. He created out of nothing. So that means He can take the empty nothing in your life, in my life, and transform it. Transform it. Now think with me about the miracle. I had to... because I'll be honest with you. I, 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 was not a, I was not good in science. Burning stuff with the Bunsen burner, melting stuff and putting it in the lab as a joke to the teacher, that I was good at. <laughs> I used to make all sorts of little fake things and put them up there and write on there. I remember this one kid brought Denny more stew to lunch. I remember we took one of those noodles, put it in one of those little bottles and labeled it something and put it on the top shelf to see how long it would take for the teacher to, like, what is this, you know? You know, a rat embryo or something. You know, what in the world, you know? Actually, now if I remember, I actually was kicked out of science. (laughs) Now that just, Ray Fisher, he's on my Facebook. He's like, He said, every time I look at you being a pastor, I just know God is a God of miracles. (laughs) But the miracle, just in a very ignoramus way, I I, might would look at it, was over a hundred chemical reactions of turning the component of water into wine. I mean, bypassing the entire grape fermentation, the growing of grape, I mean, everything that's involved in that. Jesus just (laughs) bypassed it, Right? We're not sure the mechanism whereby Jesus turned water into wine. That's a mystery and that's what makes it a miracle. But it reveals His mastery and His sovereignty even over the the molecular level of human existence of what's around. God is in charge of the very smallest components of molecules, atoms, that work in conformity to His purpose and, his will. and if there is an atom or a molecule or anything running independent of the will and purposes of God, He's not God. He can't be. So He is the catalyst for any and every transformation, whether it's turning water into wine or turning sinners into saints. There's approximately, and I can't even pronounce the number, but 10 to the 82nd power, which I believe would be what? 10 with 82 zeros? Approximately what? That's a lot of zeros. Atoms, scientists in the observable universe. That's a lot of atoms. And every single one of them traces their origin back to three words, four words, four words, when God said, let there be light. God created them. God controls them. God can heal them. God can multiply them. God can curse them. He can restore a withered hand or he can wither a barren fig tree. He does what he wants because he made them. He's in charge. It's his creation. It's his call. My boys are much older now and they don't play with these anymore. These are called what? Legos. Legos. And if you ever step on one of these at three in the morning, going to eat that last piece of chocolate cake, God will punish you. He will punish you. <laughs> now, I have six of them in here. And um, Doug, I'm going to pick on you. I want you to come up here. and I want you to make sure and check these. And just How many calculations would you imagine if you had to put in different configurations? How many configurations would you think that you could put together with those six Legos? Just all sorts of different ways that you can... What would you just guesstimate? Well... Ten, okay, all right. Who would, uh, who would think you could probably do at least more than ten? How many of you think maybe a hundred would be probably closer to what you could do? Okay, all right. Six Legos, all right. In Mark Batterson's book, he tells a story of meeting a, an executive le- with Lego. And the executive with Lego was in a, uh, was a convention of entrepreneurs, and he gave each participant six Lego bricks, and he asked them to estimate the total number of unique combinations they could create with just one of those bricks. You know how many unique combinations they've determined? Lego Corporation, you can, determ- you can make with just six Lego bricks. Put that number up. Now, that's 951 million, Right? 765 103,000 unique combinations. So why is it if we if that can be done with Legos why do we underestimate the possibilities of what God can do above and beyond what we ask or think? somehow we think that God only has a few options. He only has a few options, and when those run out, then there must be a dead end, God, because that's it. If we can somehow come up with that many different configurations of a Lego, six Legos, why should we limit God in what He can... Do when we need a miracle. And so do you feel exhausted by your options for the miracle you need in your life? God is a God of wonderful possibilities. There was a tremendous need at that wedding. Nobody could have ever conceived that He would do what He did but he did it. He did it. And it's interesting that it says that at the end the disciples believed. Well, I kind of thought they believed because that's why they were with him. What does that tell you? We believe, but we're like Thomas. We doubt. Lord, I believe, but help my... Remember what it says? Help my unbelief. You see, the disciples, they were even, in one miracle, they're thinking they're going to drown. till Jesus comes to their rescue, and after Jesus calmed the storm, they went from fearing the storm to fearing who this was in their boat, that even the storms obey His voice. When invited into our everyday lives, guys, Jesus makes great things happen. And, when G- when, and those who obey Jesus get to see His glory. Those who obey Jesus get to see the miraculous. And those who don't, don't. It's that simple. Put that last slide up before we close. Here's the big idea this morning. Don't seek miracles. Follow Jesus. Okay? Okay? If you follow Jesus long enough and far enough, you're going to find yourself in the middle of some miracles. The God who turned water into wine can turn sadness to joy, fear to faith, and death to life. Don't chase miracles. Chase Jesus. Get in on what Jesus is doing. And when you're hanging out with Jesus, He loves to do the miraculous amen let's stand and, as we pray this morning <clears throat> we're going to close in worshiping one more time with the song we sang earlier about our God is greater our God is greater he turned water into wine made the lame to walk this morning if you would like myself or one of the elders to pray with you as we sing and worship and those of you who remain don't leave remain we invite you to come i'll maybe uh, a couple of elders over here or however you want to just in the front but want to invite our elders to come during this time if you need prayer this is your time this is your time remember had to draw some out. This is your drawing out. This is your dipping the cup in the, the the jar, and saying, "Let me see what God's see what God's doing here." Okay, take a step of faith. Sometimes it's as simple as just asking for prayer. Amen. Let's as we worship, elders, you come as we want to pray for folks. All